This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Space. Time. Brain. Life. The universe. Hello and Happy New Year. This week, does being angry increase your risk of having a heart attack? Can genes make a person commit an offence? And how much does a single cell weigh? Plus, could sparks from your bedsheets start a fire? I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first up, let's meet our panel. James Rudd is a cardiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. Are you ready for some hearty questions, James? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Maud Borenstein is from Cambridge University, and uh, you're a biologist. What do you do? Yeah, I'm working in uh, early embryogenesis in mammals. What's that? Um, how from one cell, one uh, fertilised egg, are you able to obtain all the cells from a body? And uh, just a quick question for 10-point yeah. starters. How many cells in the average human? So uh, right now, nobody is uh, completely sure about this question. It's not an easy one. Uh, the last estimation that have been published is around 3.7 trillions. Wow. So yeah. from one cell to three trillion in just 40 weeks. Oh, so it's for an adult, I would say. Uh, there's, uh, there's a few more in an adult than yeah, a baby. Yeah, there's a few more. But, um, but you want yeah, to in, know. A, in only 40 weeks, it's amazing, and especially that only one cell is able to give rise to all those specialised ones. Also from Cambridge University, we have neurocriminologist Carl Treber. What's one of those? <laughs> a neurocriminologist? Neurocriminology is uh, a very new aspect of the criminology discipline. So criminology is the study of crime. Um, there's a quite a strong uh, aspect of it that's criminal justice based. I myself am a neuroscientist by original training and moved into criminology because of my interest in abnormal psychology. But actually criminology has been really dominated by sociology for the past 50 odd years. And so I said the last 20 years, we've had a lot of new advances in, in neuroscience and genetics. And so we're starting to bring some of that knowledge 
knowledge back together with the sociological aspects. And, and that really is key to my work, is trying to bridge the gap between the social aspects of crime. It is a social behavior. And also understanding what biological attributes may actually also contribute into that equation. It sounds a little bit obvious that because our brain makes us behave the way we do, that it should lead to a tendency to commit crime. It, it seems rather strange that it's only now that people are beginning to realise this. I completely agree with you. I think the dominance of the sociological field in this aspect has been driven in a lot of ways by concerns about what biological theories or biological mechanisms might imply about criminal responsibility and our, our ability to make certain kinds of decisions. But now that the science is better, now that we understand more about behaviour and the brain, then we can't divorce the two. And that's exactly what neurocriminology is trying to do. Is the idea that uh, the insurance company are going to be on the phone to you, Kyle, saying, right, what's Stuart here's risk of committing a crime in future? How much insurance do we charge him? Is that the idea? Well, this has been a big push in criminology. There's a lot of interest in risk factors, trying to understand how do we predict crime? How do we predict who's going to commit crime? And actually, the work that I'm focusing on is is a, a, a new... Um, developments, which is actually what we call analytical criminology and actually trying to go beyond risk and prediction because actually we're not very good at predicting. There are no very good predictors of crime. And what what we need to really be looking at is causal factors, causal relationships. Why are these relationships existing? What is it that a particular risk factor is doing that means it leads to crime involvement? So we really want to get beyond the question of just risk and prediction. It's not very good. So until we actually know how these factors are causing crime, we don't know what to do to stop it. Thank you, Kyle. Criminal? You've got criminal tendencies, Stuart? I'm, I'm not too impressed with your insinuations here, Chris. Um, I like to say very strong no-claims bonus here. <laughs> Stuart's a physicist. He's at Imperial College. He's also one of our regular panellists. Good to have you back. Now, Kyle, we, we got this question from Steve, and he was actually asking, can you explain the Mandela effect and why it happens? But first of all, can you just outline for us what the Mandela effect is? <laughs> I can. Um I have to admit that I was not familiar with this effect until earlier this week, so I'm certainly not an expert on the Mandela effect. The idea behind the Mandela effect is that people share memories that are incorrect, and yet many people may have the same kind of memory. So the name Mandela Effect comes from an individual who was a paranormal enthusiast, apparently, and uh, she had a memory of seeing the death of Mandela in the 1980s, seeing news bulletins on this, and yet, of course, that did not occur. He died much later, and not while he was in prison. So uh, this individual noticed that other people had a similar kind of memory. And so she became interested in why that might be. And she actually had some really interesting but uh, implausible theories, I think, about the fact that there are potentially alternate dimensions, alternate universes, and that people are moving uh, through these. And that means that they have these false memories, which actually may be true. Well, we put this out on Facebook. We got lots and lots of responses. I'll give you some more of them in a minute. But uh, Martin said this. Humphrey Bogart, whenever I was growing up, whenever impressionists used to do an impression of him or people used to refer to Humphrey Bogart, they would always reference the phrase, uh, play it again, Sam, from Casablanca. There's just one problem. He never said it. In Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman says, play it, Sam, to the uh, to the jazz singer Dooley Wilson as he plays as time goes by. At no point does anyone say, play it again, Sam, This, despite the fact it was the phrase that perhaps Humphrey Bogart carried around for the rest of his career. Also on Facebook, Matt Cochran points out that uh, in Laurel and Hardy movies, people 
claim that uh, Laurel says that's another fine mess you've got me into. He actually said it's another nice mess, allegedly. But why does it happen? Why do we think people make these memories and then they propagate everywhere? One of the reasons is simply misquoting. And we know in academia that happens a lot. People uh, misquote once and then that quote gets carried on and repeated again and again. And so that is what is being remembered. It's not the actual uh, situation. If you look at the examples, it's interesting that a lot of them have to do with language. And so I think one of the primary things that is happening is just aspects to do with memory. Um, The brain is trying to save time. It's got lots of shortcuts. And when we're trying to remember long words, long quotes, particularly something we saw in an instant and was gone and are occupied with everything else that's happening in the movie, then the brain stores it as quickly and efficiently as it can, but sometimes it gets it wrong. Anyone else had an experience of this, Stuart? Well, I was wondering because I, I was talking to my mum over the holidays and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was saying, oh, you remember that time my, my younger brother did that thing and he was really naughty at that party or something? And she said to me, no, that was that was, that was you. you. <laughs> and so I wonder in that case, maybe my brain was trying to, you know get rid of some guilt that I had or something in my system. And what was this? You started the show saying that you're blameless, no claims bonus, positive, all this kind of thing. And it sounds Uh. actually like you're also a liar. Oh, well, just kidding. <laughs> Carl, what do you think? Yeah, I, know. I, I think that kind of situation is very common. For one thing, memories from childhood, there's lots of things that have happened since then, so they're going to get adjusted. You may have heard lots of stories, and in those stories, you reform and reshape that memory. So we know that from, from images. Some people have these very vivid memories, and yet actually it's entirely formed from just having seen a particular photograph of themselves. I have similar experiences. I have an identical twin sister. Her favorite color is green. My favorite color is red. So every childhood image we have, we assume I'm the one wearing red. She's the one wearing Great. Apparently, according to my mother, this is not the case. Now, either I'm remembering it incorrectly or potentially my mother is remembering it incorrectly, which also may often be the case. Who will know? Now, it is, of course, New Year and uh, we are moving into the first show of 2017. And we can't get away with not mentioning New Year's resolutions. Here is a New Year's resolution from John. I just donated blood today and it gave me a thought. Is this a good way to lose weight? After all, that pint weighed in around one pound. I know our bodies make up for lost fluid, but the protein and lipids in our blood are lost due to our metabolism, so this must cost our bodies some calories. So James, is this a good weight loss strategy? Blood donation as a way to effortlessly lose weight, or nearly effortlessly? Well, um, it's a great question. Uh, Thank you very much, John. And it's fantastic that you're donating blood. The NHS is always in need of blood donations at any time of the year. Uh, To take to take a donation of blood, the uh, the nurses will usually remove about a pint, so about uh, 500 mils of blood. So as you say, your weight is going to go down instantaneously by around half a kilogram. But uh, if you have donated blood in the past, you will know that you're given uh, a nice large cup of tea, plenty of biscuits. So I think by the time you leave the blood donation centre, about an hour afterwards, most of that weight will have been put on in the form of tea and biscuits. The follow-up part of your question about protein and lipids is theoretically interesting, but you must remember that most of our body weight is actually due to water. So I think by the time you're rehydrated, perhaps the next morning, you're going to be back at the starting weight. So great idea in theory, but uh, probably hasn't got legs, I don't think. So your average blood sample's got, what, 45% is cells, 55% is water. Mm. So at least a couple of hundred grams of the blood donation is just water, like you're saying. That's your cup of tea, bringing it back in. The biscuit's got 60, 70 calories in. There's quite a lot of energy in a biscuit, isn't there? So you've only got to make up just a half a kilo of cells. It's not very much. No. No, it's a quarter of a kilo of cells. It's going to grow those back quite quickly so I reckon that's a no-no go for a jog instead for the weight loss yeah absolutely go for a jog do something else but by all means don't stop donating blood James thanks very much now Mohammed's five-year-old wanted to know the answer to this one why does soap 
come in different colours, but always comes out with white bubbles. Terrific question, Stuart. Why is it that I can buy all these exciting ranges of colours of soaps, but as soon as I put them in the bath, turn the taps on, the foam I get is just white? That's an amazing question. And you'd think, actually, that, you know, soaps contain all these different dyes in them that absorb light of different colours. So why isn't that colour reflected in the foam? Things look like a certain colour because when the uh, light hits the object, it's either absorbed or a certain wavelengths are reflected. But actually, in this case, we're getting all lots of different wavelengths reflected. So even though there is the dye in the soap and it has this certain colour, so much light's being scattered back to us and reflected back to us that actually we perceive it as white. And it's a great experiment, which I don't know if you've any of you have done this with Marmite. <laughs> you, do you love it or hate it? <laughs> oh, I can't stand Marmite itself, but this is great. So you can do this at home. If you get a bowl and put some Marmite in it and you get a whisk and you start whisking the Marmite. Marmite is this, this really sticky, dark brown substance. And you think, well, it's, you know, we're like kind of not being reflected from that. But as you whisk more and more air into it, you introduce more and more, uh, you know, we create a foam of Marmite. Then actually it starts to go paler and paler and eventually it starts to kind of, turn into this kind of white cream colour. And you discovered this how? Practice. <laughs> but it really goes white. Yeah, it does. It? Yeah, if you if you whisk it far enough, I mean, it's kind of like a beigey white. But yeah, if you if you really put enough air into it, it'll eventually go foamy, and then it will start to look white. Can you make marmite meringues then? Oh, that's horrible. Oh, it's a horrible I, thought. But, would yeah. it, but from a physics point of view, would it would it happen? I guess if you could if you could somehow get it to the marmite to spread out and be dispersed, as we say, into a, a mixture of egg and protein, then maybe you could. That sounds like a great. I, I might try that later. And just to return to the soap point of view, away from the Marmite, it's the same principle then that when you look at snow, this is white, despite the fact that you've got um, water, which is transparent, that makes it, you end up with white snow because it's lots of little crystals of ice which are doing pretty much the same thing. Milk, probably the same, or Dettol. When you pour pour Dettol or detergent in water, you get it going into a cloudy white colour and it's little blobs which are bending light in the same way. Yes, it's all to do with, does this material that we're looking at have lots of different angles and, and a complex structure that can cause light to scatter and reflect in lots of different angles? Stuart, thank you very much. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and today we have a wonderful panel of science superstars who are taking on your questions. So if you're wondering about how, why, what or where, just drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Uh, now, Kyle, we've heard from Rachel B on Facebook who talked about a range of things and gave some examples, but it boils down to she's wondering actually what constitutes a psychopath. What's one of those? This is a good question. Um, psychopathy is a, a term that's got a lot of attention right now in criminology, but it's still a very nebulous concept. The term itself, psychopathy, it's a disease of the mind. It's it's very broad. Um, but generally, when we're talking about a psychopath, we're talking about people who have particular, what we call psychopathic traits. And these tend to be things like being callous, unemotional, self-aggrandizement. They're typically associated, I think, most predominantly with emotional deficits. And these may be deficits in some cases of people's ability to experience emotions, but also there's a lot of evidence that there may be ability to experience emotions, but then not to use that information later on when people are making decisions about, about behavior. And of course, that can lead to lots of challenges in action decision making. And one of the things I think it's really useful from this area of research is that it has brought attention to the emotions and the role of emotions in criminal decision making. Oh, thank you. Meanwhile, Maud, uh, Tony emailed to chris at thenakedscientist.com with this question for you. Having heard a segment on your recent Q&A show in which it was estimated that the human body makes 5 million cells a second, I started to wonder how much a cell would weigh and how I might work it out. 
I then realized different types of cell might have different weights and sizes and would be renewed at different rates. Any ideas? The body is made of very different types of cells. If you think about a red blood cell, for example, that is a very tiny cell, compared to nerve cells, uh, nerve cells can reach lengths over a meter. So it's a bit difficult to do an approximation of the weight of a single cell. Should we have a straw poll? James, how much do you think a, a cell weighs? It depends which cell you're talking about, Chris. Okay. What cell would you like to estimate? Red blood cell. Okay, how much does a red blood cell weigh? I would say about um, a thousandth of a gram. One milligram. Yeah. Is James going for a milligram? You think, Stuart, does that sound within the realms of possibility? Well, you said 3.7 trillion earlier, so I'll yeah. try and divide that by yeah, in between my calculator. Yeah, 3.7 and 30 um, trillion. I'm going to go for the bit less than a gram Round it to one Ooh, for physicist approach. Oh, oh, okay. Maud, put us out of our misery then. So um, we can more or less do an approximation around uh, one nanogram. So a that, nanogram? Yeah, nanogram. So we can imagine... So that's James is a million-fold out then. Yeah, exactly. We can imagine to do a gram of cells, we would need nearly a billion. Well, that's quite light, yeah, isn't yeah. it? But you did say, and James was, he, he was crafty because he said, which sort of cell are we talking about? Because some cells, like you say, a muscle cell, a big muscle, a muscle cell, cell will be some a of lot those are a foot long, aren't they? Ex- so a muscle cell will be a lot easier, even like uh, an adipose cell, a fat cell, for example. Uh, so um, there's a question of size, but also a question of weight. Fat cell will be lighter than muscle cells, even if both are quite big. Because I imagine, as you say, the muscles of your quadriceps or your hamstrings are foot long, got to be up there. 10, 20 grams, probably more, isn't it, I would think? I would think probably, because that's one of the biggest muscles you've got, isn't it? Apart from your, your gluteal muscles and your bum. They're, yeah. they're, I think, the the king muscle, aren't they? Now, don't beat yourself up for having got this one wrong, James. We've got this lovely question from Margaret for you. My mum used to say, if I knocked myself, rub it better. Was that just a diversionary tactic, or is there something in it? So, uh, a bruise uh, is, uh, I think, what's being referred to here. So, a bruise is really bleeding uh, underneath the skin so it, when you when you bang yourself on the desk bang your knee on the desk what happens is the very small blood vessels uh, can rupture because of the force of the of the impact and this blood accumulates underneath the skin and causes uh, inflammation and swelling of that area and if you observe the area over a few days you'll notice that the color of the bruise changes from initially a sort of deep blue to more of a brown to more of a yellow uh, and that's really because the uh, the elements of the blood, the iron, the heme, is changing and being oxidised with time. Uh, now, as for rubbing the bruise and making it better, I did look into this because I hadn't actually heard this old wives' tale before, but I, I think it is just that. It's an old wives' tale. Um, part of the defensive mechanism of the body is to stimulate that inflammation when you bang yourself. So um, the swelling is protective, really, and helps the body break down the blood that's got into the tissues. Rubbing it is a good distraction, certainly. And with my toddler at home, if there is a bruise, a good rub on the knee and some chocolate, perhaps, certainly diffuses the situation. But I don't think there's any effect there. Thank you very much, James. Now, Stuart, Gazing skyward for a second, uh, Yossip has been stargazing. He has this rather tricky question for you. Are there other universes like our own? Are there more universes? Do they float around like bubbles in nothing? Do you know what, Chris? I have to be completely honest here. I had no idea about this question. Even as a physicist, even having a physics degree, I had to go and consult a more specialist physicist. I'd go find a cosmologist and ask him. So thank you to Dr. Roberta Trotter at Imperial College. He's a theoretical cosmologist. So I went and had a very nice coffee with him and he he kind of blew my mind. So there are lots of different ideas here. But what I should say is that these are theories. These are 
ideas and consequences of the mathematics that that cosmologists have come up with. Uh, Not all cosmologists agree about these. But in the same way that we know about the Big Bang model and that understanding of the universe, if you start to look at more complicated maths, start to consider what other consequences of different models that created the universe, then there are some interesting outcomes. It could be actually that our universe isn't the only one, that other universes have budded off at a certain time and have very different properties to our own, that they could have different numbers of dimensions, that they could have different constants of the laws of physics where the speed of light is somehow different or something else entirely. And on top of that, it gets even more complicated when you consider things like the quantum multiverse. So one way of interpreting the kind of mysteriousness of quantum mechanics is that when you make a decision, the universe splits out into all the different variants of different ways that decision could have gone. And so you end up with this very complicated system of theories where you have different universes, each of which might have millions of quantum multiverses on top of them. So it's very complicated. And the answer is these are all theories and we can't yet measure anything to give us an indication of what they are but they're consequences of the maths Michio Kaku uh, came over from New York and gave a talk here in Cambridge about 10 years ago uh, to coincide with the release of his book Parallel Universes and he said well one of the ideas of the Big Bang that occurred in our universe its origin you can think of it like the Big Bang is a white hole which occurs at the arsehole of a black hole in another universe. A sort of one universe is spawning other universes out of its black holes. Uh, did uh, Roberto Trotter comment on that at all? He didn't specifically use that language, no. Um, but it is. Well, neither did Michio Kaku, but I was sort of adding colour. OK, OK. But it, I mean, it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, it is one of those things. That, so I'm an experimentalist and I have to be, you know, I always want to see the data. I want to see what the measurements are. But actually, at the same time, you need to be able to theorise these things so you know, as experimentalists, what to look for. And maybe in the future, when our, in, our instruments get better, as we're able at detecting more exotic things like gravitational waves, we might start to see signatures of what's beyond our current understanding of the universe. Thanks, Joe. Now, Kyle, we've got this question from Kiri. How do certain prefrontal cognitive functions go offline in times of intense anger, fear or distress? And can having ready access to deadly weapons when these functions are impaired be a factor in high rates of gun violence? So I I guess what she's saying is can people dissociate themselves from reality when they've got a gun in their hand when they know they're going to do something evil with it? One of the things that she's tapping into, which is very important, is that we aren't always cognitively in control. So the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that does our really conscious, careful, deliberate thinking. And uh, one of the the focuses for a lot of decision making when it comes to crime has been on this. How do people think about the cost and the benefits of their crimes and how does that weigh into whether they decide to do it or not? So we have a focus on prevention like deterrence, trying to see people, uh, show people that there are bigger costs to their behaviors. But we're finding that's not working. And one of the reasons that uh, I think that is the case is because the prefrontal cortex is often not in control. But another aspect of decision-making, which is what is being tapped into in this question, is the more emotive or affective control. And these are more primitive, more automatic processes in the brain. And there's actually parts of the brain that decide whether they pull in this cognitive prefrontal aspect or not. And in a case when someone's under extreme fear, under extreme stress, the brain doesn't have the time, the effort to bring in those processes. So instead, it relies on more automatic behaviors, habits, instincts um, in some cases. And so that is what's happening when people are really afraid. And if you have a gun to hand, then it is possible that that could lead to a quicker response that involves the gun. However, there's a lot going on here. People have to see 
having that gun and using it as an option for action. And many people just automatically won't. So automatically, in that so moment of fear, they won't reach for the gun. Many people won't even have the gun with them in the first place. But having the gun present does suggest that the person thinks that they might use the gun in some situations. And so therefore, if it is there, then that's a possibility that's going to relate to, to the violent behaviour. So would that stand up as a defence in court, do you think? Oh, um, my brain screened out all of my other thought processes and I thought I was in danger, so I just shot the person. This is a big current issue in neurolaw, actually. It's something that's of real interest and we haven't been able to deal with it. And one of the reasons is because neurologists, criminologists and lawyers aren't speaking the same language. So that's that's just an issue that we need to address. And obviously, it's an important one. I think at the moment, our understanding is, is that there is an element of, of control and ability that is there. You could have people in the same situation who wouldn't make the, the same choice. And so until we can see that you absolutely would have no choice, then I think the law will stay as it is. But it's certainly a discussion that, that is being had and needs to be had. Carl, thank you very much. And uh, James, stick around. Got this question from Luke, who says, could superglue be used to suture things? It's a good question, Luke, and the answer is yes. In fact, since about the 1970s, superglue, in a much more dilute form than you'd buy in your local hardware store, has been used for just this, uh, for just this purpose. Uh, it, it, the superglue we use in hospitals is of what we call a medical grade, so it's uh, checked for uh, sterility, make sure it's sterile, make sure there's no bacteria or viruses in there. But it works very well, and, and head-to-head studies with traditional stitches have shown that the glue in many cases is superior because the act of actually putting a needle through the skin to introduce the suture actually is another portal for infections to get into the wound and, and cause wound infections. So for certain kind of incisions, superglue or its, or its more dilute cousin, shall we say, is very good. The glue is generally applied to uh, incisions that are quite shallow, uh, particularly on the face, because you don't then get the associated small holes where the sutures have been placed. And rather than being worried about superglue sticking there forever and it being hard to get rid of, we know that the superglue, after three or four days, actually comes away quite easily once the wound has begun to heal underneath it. Does it work its way out through the surface then? Is that what happens? The, the glue is just shed with dead skin? Exactly. As the epithelial cells die and are replaced, the layer with the glue slowly sloughs off. So you haven't got a layer of Loctite left in your face for the rest of your life? No, exactly. No. Thank you, James. Stuart Lionel says, Would removing the seats from my car save me some fuel? Now, just he doesn't mean the driver's seat obviously. He says, my new diesel second-hand car has some removable seats. They're quite heavy, maybe 10 kilos each. The trouble is I park on the road. It's often 300 metres away from my house, so the seats are a bit heavy to cart around on foot, but that means an extra car journey to pick up the seats if I leave them home to save fuel. So I'm wondering what sort of mileage would make it worthwhile leaving the seats at home? Should you take the seats out or would driving around with them really not make any difference? So it would make a difference, but probably not enough to warrant taking the seats out. And it's all down to, especially the weight, is all down to different mechanisms. So different things can affect how much energy the car uses. And in particular, your tyres. So about 3 to 7% of your energy that's burnt as fuel goes through the rolling resistance of the tyre. That's because you're bending and flexing the rubber. As every time it goes round, it's, it's squeezing and then stretching a bit. And that's, that's converting some kinetic energy into some heat, isn't it? That's exactly right. So that's where some of that energy is being lost. And as you apply more load, more weight to your vehicle that deformation, that amount of flexing goes up and that starts to increase. So that's why you should pump the tyres up and make sure you have well-inflated tyres because then they're not bending as much, so you're not wasting as much fuel 
flexing and reshaping your tyres. Very true. But at the same time, there are other factors you might want to consider, such as how your tyres grip the road and other safety aspects that are unrelated. And now this is very, very back of the envelope. This is the physics, uh, the physicist disclaimer here. And I was looking at some data that was measured in the US of how the weight of a car relates to what its miles per gallon efficiency is. And it works out at something like per kilogram of weight, something like a reduction of 0.02 miles per gallon. That's very rough. And I've got a lot of caveats on that. But applied to the situation with, say, three seats and about uh, 10 kilos each, if you're doing about 6,500 miles, which is the UK average over a year, it works out at about two gallons of fuel, which is about 11 quid a year. I was going to say the other thing that I find interesting is I never fill my car right up full of fuel unless I'm going on a long journey where I'm not going to stop because otherwise you think the mass of the fuel in the car that big tank of fuel weighs the equivalent of a person doesn't it and you are especially if you're driving around town you are accelerating and then braking and accelerating and adding all that energy to that fuel for no reason. And that's exactly right. So if you look at things that would make a bigger difference than, say, moving the seats out, actually your driving style is a huge big part of that. How fast you accelerate in that action has a big impact on how much fuel you're going to use. Now, moving swiftly on, Maud, we've got this interesting question for you, which has come in from Neil. If cows ate strawberries, would they produce strawberry milk? Now, I like that idea very much, but is that a myth or could it happen? Yeah, so I, I do like also this idea. I would have uh, preferred chocolate uh, if I would have the choice. But um, you won't strawberryified your milk, no. But what we know now is that a change in the um, in what you give to your cow could slightly influence the taste of the milk. So there's two studies that have been uh, already published, and it seems that when they add strong flavor to the food, there's a slight taste that have been found in the milk. And this is something that is found also, for example, in France with the cheese. Uh, for the Gruyere or the Beaufort, we have two kinds of cheese. We have the summer one and the winter one. And it, it seems to be because of what the cow will eat. During the summer, they will eat grass and flowers, when during the winter, they will mostly eat hay. And it's slightly changed the taste of the cheese. Sure. I heard something as well that if you fed certain animals, say poison ivy or something, that you could they could develop in their milk some kind of uh, antidote or some kind of resistance that would be produced by the milk afterwards. That you could use the animal almost to kind of create a to create. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that what is uh, important with the the milk is that you you can give to the baby. Oh, you're talking about yes, antibody yeah, that can go into like yeah, colostrum sorry. and things because that can change the microbes that live in your gut. I wondered when you were talking about breastfeeding whether you were going to explore this whole idea about what the mum eats affects what the baby grows up wanting to eat or has a particular predilection to want. You're nodding, James. Is this something you've seen? I've certainly heard heard it said that what the mother eats um, can make breast milk more or less palatable to the baby. Now, as to whether it affects the baby's or the child's food choices later in life, is this the Mandela effect, Chris? Or is I, this a... <laughs> I have seen studies that have looked so, at yeah. what goes into the mother's mouth and then what ends up in her blood. And there are certain proteins which you can then trace. People have done tracing studies and they can show them coming through in the breast mm. milk. And so there is a suggestion that certain foodstuffs do influence the composition of breast milk. And that can include strongly flavoured yeah. chemicals, so, you know, particularly garlics and onions, allium family type exactly. things. And that may have a patterning effect on what the baby likes. Kyle? 
I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this, but I have two small children who I, I did breastfeed, so I, I read a lot of literature and it certainly is, is given that you will have these differences that come through in the milk from what you, you eat. But I think there's a lot of real uh, new research about the gut. Um, again, I'm, I study the brain, so a bit far outside of my field, but... Um, that there, there's some fascinating stuff that I've read about the effects on the gut biology and the fact that, that we are just learning more about that biota that's there. And so we know that cesarean sections, for example, it is changing the gut uh, biology of the, of the babies who are born by cesarean. So I, I, I'm, I would be curious if the breast milk, the breastfeeding is changing that too. I don't know of any research on that. Calm. Thank you very much. It's, of course, your favourite science programme, The Naked Scientists, with me, Chris Smith. Today, I'm joined by a panel of experts who are ready to take on your questions. They're physicist Stuart Higgins, biologist Maud Borenstein, neurocriminologist Carl Treber, and James Rudd is a cardiologist. He's a heart doctor. Now, talking of hearts, James, does being angry increase your risk of a heart attack? That's from Linda. There has been some... Recent research, actually, there was a, a paper published in 2016 and a much larger review in 2014 that showed that, yes, uh, if you have an angry outburst or get upset or stressed by something, over the two hours following the angry outburst, even if you've calmed down, there is a four times increase in your risk of heart attack. Now, you have to put that into context, um, the fact that most of the risk of an individual's uh, risk of a heart attack is extremely low. And the risk of a heart attack in any one hour period is very, very small. So increasing a very, very small beginning number by four times, you're still left with quite a small risk at the end of that. Um, And there are far greater risks to having heart attacks, things like diabetes, blood pressure and smoking that we're aware of. And also related to this, um, there was another really fascinating study which was performed during the 2010 World Cup. And it was shown that watching England's dismal performance, if you remember, during that competition, uh, actually, again, because it's a stressor to the system, you're you're frustrated, you're sitting in front of the TV watching the football, that can also increase the risk of heart attack. And uh, again, are there any would... teleprograms or sports I can watch that won't have that effect or will have a reverse or a calming effect and, and reduce my heart attack risk? Maybe I'm going to go out and say bowls, maybe, something like that. You'd just die of boredom instead, wouldn't you? <laughs> But surely the element about getting angry, although in that moment in time your risk elevation is quite small, surely one has to consider that if you are chronically angry, and we all know chronically angry people, then that risk must magnify because it will accumulate over a day, over a week, over a month and so on. Absolutely right. And this effect was most prominent in people that are generally of the angrier, uh, what should we say, persuasion to start with. And also in patients with pre-existing heart disease, again, compared to patients without it. So it's a small effect. It's real. And we think it's probably to do with increasing the blood pressure, increasing the heart rate, which, of course, stresses the cardiovascular system, puts more stress and work on the heart. And that puts you at greater risk of heart attacks for about that two hour period afterwards. We're talking of getting stressed, and thank you for that one, James. Um, What about this one, Stuart? The other day I was sleeping and I woke up. I turned around and rubbed my hands across my sheet when suddenly I noticed white sparks come out. Could this possibly cause a fire? So Serene is wondering, could her pyjamas or her bedclothes set her on fire? What do you think? No, and that's because the energy that comes out of those sparks is far too small to ignite the sheets of the material that your bed is made of. But actually, there are circumstances where it could be a problem. 
And the classic example is at a petrol station. So we, How many people sleep in a petrol station, Stuart? Well, that's true. That is very true. So if you're in bed, you're okay. But the way you have to worry about this is something like... Well, do you, actually, do you know why you have to hold the handle in the UK? So if you go to the US or, say, Germany, you don't have to hold the handle while you're filling the, the car Of the petrol pump. Of the petrol pump. Yeah. Because you, 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 it's earthed. Yeah, exactly. So they found that if you have a system where you go and put the petrol pump in, you squeeze the handle and you lock it in place so you can walk away, people tend to go and sit back in their cars. And as they get out of their car again, their clothes are rubbing against the seat and it's generating this static electricity. And the first thing you then touch is the petrol pump with the vapour and in that case the energy from the spark which is about eight kilovolts is enough to ignite the petrol fumes very low risk doesn't happen a lot very very few reported cases but it's one of the reasons why in the uk you have to squeeze the handle while you're doing it is it fashion dependent people who have a persuasion towards particular latex or uh, nylon underwear or something are they more prone to having a fuel tank fire um, potentially. So the ability to charge clothes by rubbing them against different surfaces depends on what that material is. And certain materials, yeah, are easier to charge up than others. You can sleep easy on that piece of advice. Your bed sheets are not going to cause an inferno while you're sleeping. Now more, Judy has written in on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And she says, what would happen if you incubated a double yolked egg? What would hatch out if you incubated them for the required 21 days? Would you get two chickens? Would you have Siamese chickens? Some kind of horrid, deformed monster? What's the answer? You will end up with uh, two chickens. The thing is, even if a double uh, yolk uh, egg is bigger than a single yolk, two chicks won't have enough space. So having two healthy chicks at the end is something that is unlikely to happen. Thank you very much, Maud. Uh, now, Kyle, uh, JJ Vigiano has written on our forum, that's nakedscientist.com slash forum, the following um, for you. Our behaviour always seems to be determined by what happened in the past, the present situation, the presence of authority figures, our upbringing, our genetics and so on. Is there any room left for free will? Consider crime, for example. Men commit more crime overall and more violent crime. Could genetics or upbringing be responsible for this disparity? There are thousands of factors that we know are associated with crime involvement, and some of those are individual, some of those are biological, others are psychological. Um, but we also have many, many social uh, aspects, environmental factors that, that we know predict crime. And I think once we are understanding more and more how not only how many factors, but how interactive those factors are, we talk about multifactorial effects. So, for example, it's not going to be one gene. Uh, we have found uh, very little evidence of, of any single gene having a huge influence on, on criminal behavior. In fact, there seem to be many, many genes involved in any kind of, of outcome, physical or behavioural. And, of course, behaviour is a whole other dimension. Um, similarly, there are also very, very many environmental effects that are, that are interacting with those genetic effects. And so ultimately what we have are very small influences across many factors. And so I think actually rather than saying is there any room left for free will, I think it's quite clear that there's plenty of room for free will because not any of those factors is going to be so influential that we have, have no um, options or choices but to do uh, what it's influencing us to do. There was a study from the US last year which I remember reporting on. I was quite struck by it that they were showing it's correlation not causation you've got to be careful how one interprets this but there was a lady showing that where you grow up in terms of your exposure to pollution strongly influences your likelihood of getting into trouble and having behavioral problems or even being dyslexic and so they were showing this strong correlation between maternal exposure to pollution and then these different behaviors in the children and so I guess that would be a good example here wouldn't it that the environment in which you grow up same individuals, they controlled the study quite carefully. They compared individuals who lived in polluted and non-polluted parts of cities. There was this really quite profound effect. 
we see a lot of research that is like this. And it's very interesting because it does suggest that, that something is happening. But a lot of what may be happening may not be a causal effect in the sense that the pollution is causing that effect. So the pollution may be having some effects on development, um, which we could study and look at. But arguably, there's also going to be selection effects about the kinds of people that live in these neighborhoods. And those individuals, that selection of those kinds of individuals into those environments may be having more of an influence on the outcomes of the children than actually the pollution itself. And the questioner mentions the fact that it very often is men. Why are we more prone as men to do naughty things compared to women, or or are we? Well, one thing you have to think about is that it's not being male that makes you more prone. So there are very many men who do not commit crime far more than than actually do and have have any kind of criminal conviction. Being male does not make it more likely that you will offend. There are certain things about males that may mean that you're more likely to be in situations that you would be vulnerable to More likely to to get caught? You could be more likely to be caught. There could be very much be a selection effect that the police are more likely to arrest you or you're more likely to get convicted well, for your crime. Women are better planners. <laughs> well, I mean, we could argue that all day. But um, as far as, as crime involvement goes, I think there's a lot of differences. What we look at, for example, differences in, in what women think are right or wrong behaviors to do. Um, there are levels of self-control, but also in particular, their exposure to different kinds of environments, how much time they spend unsupervised with their peers, hanging out at night, drinking alcohol uh, in city parks and so forth. Interesting. James? I was just going to come back to your point, Chris, about uh, pollution and how it can really affect not only potentially your uh, risk of future crime, but also there's a a very strong link with heart disease as well. And in fact, it's an inverse square law. The further you move away from the road, the the less your chance of heart disease. And do we know why? It's thought to be the the nanoparticulate, very small uh, little bits of pollution that can get straight into the bloodstream through the lungs and they again increase stress on the heart. Uh, How? Uh, atherosclerosis, so hardening of the arteries, it exists in most people. But people with high levels of these pollutants in their blood, there's more inflammation, and this can lead to plaque rupture and, and heart attacks. Well, speaking of blood flow, James, have a listen to this one, which uh, has come in from Thomas. During open heart surgery, patients are often connected to the heart-lung machine. I know that patients are regularly cooled down this way for reduced metabolism. What is the longest time that one could survive without running blood circulation? And at what temperature and degrees centigrade would metabolism be maximally reduced without the risk of damaging human cells? So talk us through the procedure, James, and, and then perhaps give us some insights into what the answer is. During heart surgery, it's important for the heart surgeon that the heart stops beating. A beating heart is very hard to work on in terms of putting in sutures, etc. So what the surgeon does is stops the heart beating, and this is done using an infusion of potassium. And also the patient is cooled down about four or five degrees lower than normal uh, body temperature. And finally, they're connected to what's called a heart-lung bypass machine, uh, which simply, as the name suggests, bypasses the heart circulation. So the patient's own blood is taken out from the, uh, the right side of the heart, the atria. It's then oxygenated artificially in the heart-lung machine and then put back into the patient. Um, so the patient is, the heartbeat, heart is not beating, and this can be sometimes for uh, many hours without any detrimental effects. Um, there's a second part to the question, which is how long could somebody survive without any circulation? Uh, We know that the brain is the most sensitive organ to not having adequate oxygen and blood supply. And most people think that two to three minutes without any circulation is enough to cause, you know, very severe irreparable brain damage. Now, what's interesting is that you've told us all of these figures about cells needing oxygen and sugar and things, but the egg that we were talking about earlier, Maud, 
that doesn't have any circulation. So how does it get its oxygen and sugar? And why doesn't the egg succumb to the same problems? Because chickens are warm-blooded and the eggs are incubated under the hen's body to keep it warm, aren't they? So how do they protect themselves? Yeah, so what is uh, amazing with eggs that they are self-sufficient, at least for a certain period of time. In the human, it's only self-sufficient for the 10 first days before implantation. Then the egg will implant in the uterus for human and you will develop blood exchange between the mother and the baby. Now we've got just a few more minutes to answer a couple more questions here on The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Stuart Donald is wondering actually how you turn gas and dust into planets because he makes a point that when one thing bounces off another it wouldn't really want to stick together. So how does stuff get started sticking together under the influence of gravity in the first place? So uh, stars and planets are formed in these giant dust clouds and initially it's gravity that starts to bring things together and the star forms when the gas cloud collapses on itself and the gravity pulls in. Eventually at some point nuclear fusion can start because the, the, the force is so great and the star is born. With planets, when you've got dust circulating these systems, now as different uh, or initially as different atoms pass each other they might bind together and form a molecule and these might start to aggregate and get into slightly larger dust particles but actually there is a problem here because when dust particles start to get bigger and bigger when they bash into each other they don't necessarily stick they bounce off each other like you know two uh, pool balls hitting each other and so this is actually a puzzle this is an ongoing puzzle in the science it's not clear what the answer is some people think that actually it depends on the shape of the dust particles. So if the dust forms in a very irregular way, they call a fractal way, it's a very rough surface, then the chance of it sticking when two pieces come together is quite high. Some people think maybe actually that there's um, some organic material in there that's more sticky that might add to that mix, or maybe ice or frost. But it's a really big puzzling problem. It's called the metre-sized problem, which is how do you get from bits of things that are on the order of centimetres up past a metre without them either bashing off each other so that either they split apart again or that they're becoming too big that they suddenly fall into the star they're orbiting. Is it not just the fact that when you've got lots, millions, billions of particles all in one place, that you've got billions of goes that them all kind of bashing into each other with different amounts of momentum coming from different directions and just by chance a few are going to cancel each other's movement out exactly and hang around together and then once you've got a few of those, a few more of those join in and, and, and eventually with enough rolls of the dice you get there. Yeah, so potentially that part of the problem is that when people study this they literally get dust and fire it at each other and record it with a high-speed camera and that gives you some indication it shows you how things bounce off each other but it doesn't necessarily reflect the environment that the particles are moving in so for example some people or some scientists believe that actually if your large particle is moving through a gas flow and a bit flies off that small bit that flies off is going to fly straight into a, a gas stream and be pushed back towards the big particle again so it all depends and basically it's complicated and we're still not sure exactly what happens Thank you very much, Stuart. There's a quandary for another day and another show. Now, Millie has been in touch with this. I was curious if it's possible to alter your genes, like alter the amount of melanin in your skin. For example, my father has darker, more olive skin and my mother pale freckled skin. I have pale freckled skin. Would it be possible to manipulate my genes to make my skin darker? Would these dark skin cells already be in my genes from my father's side, but the pale genes outweigh them? Maud, what do you think? 
I would like to begin by saying that now we we do have the technology to edit our gene, to edit our DNA. So we are able to target one cell or a pool of cells and modify precisely our DNA sequence. The thing is, people are thinking about developing that for gene therapy, for example. Thinking about the question of uh, Millie about uh, the skin, we could target a smaller amount of skin cells and modify the gene, but thinking about modifying the entire skin body is something that seems very complicated. So it might be possible in the future, but right now, probably a step too far. <laughs> I would say that being able to touch an entire organ, you, you should think about changing it, mutating it earlier. So meaning earlier uh, in Before the it gets to those three trillion cells exactly. or so. Maud, thank you. Now, James, we've got quite a few emails that have come in and inquiries about the relationship between diet and heart disease. And Elizabeth has asked about the role of omega-3 fatty acids. So can you explain what they are and also how food in general affects your risk of heart disease? So again, it's a really good question and, and very topical at the moment. There are three or four different types of dietary fat. And Elizabeth is referring to what we call poly unsaturated fats, omega-3 and omega-6 being the main ones that we consume. And long-term studies of something called the Mediterranean diet, which takes advantage of the fact that people in southern France, southern Italy and Spain have less heart disease than people in the north of Europe. And they seem to consume a lot more oily fish, and oily fish such as salmon, fresh tuna, mackerel, herring, etc., are very rich in omega-3 and this has been shown to be a significant factor in reducing the incidence of heart disease. Now, a second question which I'm often asked in my in my outpatient clinic is, can I take supplements? I don't like oily fish. Can I take pills, omega-3 pills, instead of eating oily fish? The answer is is fairly clear that supplements are not as good as eating the fish itself. For vegetarians out there, there are options, other options that contain omega-3, such as uh, flax is one that's uh, that was well recommended, and that seems to have some beneficial effect. Do you believe this, or do you think it's just that people who don't eat fish in their diet probably don't eat other things that are also positive in terms of their impact on your health? And so we're attributing that to a lack of fish or omega-3 fatty acids and its other health effects. The studies have actually been fairly rigorous and they have controlled for other areas of the diet that might be deficient. And the recommendation from societies like the British Heart Foundation, which is leading in this area, is that we should eat oily fish twice a week uh, and one of the portions should be around 140 grams. And that is does have a very positive beneficial effect on reducing the chance of heart disease. Good for brain development as well, I've heard. Is that true? I believe so, yes, at a, a much earlier age, obviously, than we're, we're talking about preventing heart attacks. But yes, I think there is an effect there as well. Kyle, this is from James in Birmingham, who wrote in with this. I have a friend who is a policewoman patrolling the streets in Birmingham city centre. She and her colleagues have noticed that there is often a lot more trouble resulting in arrests around the time of the full moon. It's been noticed for more than a couple of years. Of course, this might be explained by something like people being paid for weekly, coincidentally around the time of a full moon, and thus having more money to spend in the pub getting drunk and into trouble. Or there could be other logical explanations, but so far nobody has identified a reason for the link. We know that there's more crime on dark winter nights, less crime when it rains, but why would the presence of a full moon, even when cloudy, have an effect? 
I won't do a werewolf noise, Carl, but why does this happen? Because there does appear to be an effect, doesn't there? Well, I really like this question because it immediately made me start to think about why could this this relationship actually exist? Um, is there anything about the full moon that could actually cause someone to commit an act of crime? Sadly, I have to say, um, my very quick overview of the, of the literature suggests that there isn't very strong statistical evidence that, that there's a consistent effect of the moon on, on criminal behavior. However, we can still think about what those effects might be. And there's some interesting new research. Uh, we seem to have ruled out that any gravitational effects are having the moon does not have gravitational pull at the individual level, apparently. Um, but there's some, some new interesting research about the fact that there may be some lunar-based elements of our circadian rhythms, so our natural rhythms um, that we have throughout the day. And that could relate back to mechanisms that had to do with the tide and the importance of the tide for uh, food, uh, for aspects of, of mating or bringing people together, um, being able to move from one environment to another. So that's interesting to think there might be a mechanism. And it does affect aspects like cortisol, certain hormones, which we know are related to stress response Responses, which therefore can be related to crime. I think, though, arguably, these effects are going to be probably as small or much smaller than things like what you ate for, for dinner or how much sleep you got the night before. Um, and more likely, if there is an effect, it's going to be more environmental. So maybe that it's lighter outside. People spend more time being active uh, in, in contexts where they can get in trouble. And maybe the police also are more alert because they have this feeling that people are going to be more troublemaking. And so they're more likely to catch the offenders. So maybe the moon helps them uh, apprehend more offenders. So all of these things could be feeding into any relationship was a study in current biology. I remember this about three or four years ago, and they actually had some data collected more than a decade ago from people coming to a lab and doing a sleep study. And someone said, well, look, actually, we've got all of the data and we know exactly who turned up and how long they slept for and how well they slept. And someone said, why don't we just compare that with what the moon was doing at the same time? And they found that people attending for the study at the time when there was a full moon had much worse sleep performance initially in the study than individuals who came at other phases of the moon cycle. So they were suggesting that there does appear to be some kind of monthly cycle built into our brain, perhaps dictated by the moon, or perhaps that's just an indirect marker, perhaps it's light or something. But there did appear to be an effect. Yeah, I think uh, uh, from what I know of this, and again, it's not necessarily my area of expertise, but um, I think that, yes, there is evidence that there is uh, such an effect, but it was something like 20 minutes difference in sleep a night. And we know about how many other factors can influence us. <laughs> Using 20 minutes of sleep a night. Um, so again, it's very interesting to think about that. I think it was robust, actually, whether or not they experienced any changes in light as well. So it was ruling out that aspect of it, which I think is a very good, important aspect of that kind of research. But ultimately, I think, again, the effect's very small. Kyle, thank you. Now, speaking of, of the moon being up in the sky, Stuart, we've got this uh, rather nice question from Aaron, who says, how far above ground does the sky actually begin? And does it end at some point in space? Yeah, so first first bits first, where does the sky begin? Well, it, it kind of begins where the ground stops being. It's, it's just outside, it's where the atmosphere is. Um, if you want to go into a legal side of it, you could also argue that, you know, actually planes are not allowed to fly below 150, 300 metres. So a lot of discussions about drones and making sure you don't fly there. But the sky begins at ground level. Where it ends... Well, that kind of depends on what you think. So actually, it's fuzzy. There is no clear boundary where we say that's the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. It extends out huge, huge distances. There's something called the exosphere, which is this uh, huge ball of low-density gas that extends something around 10,000 kilometres up, up into the sky. Um, bear in mind that the, the width of the Earth is 12,000 uh, kilometres. So to give you a size, that's huge. 
But a lot of people like um, to define it as being, or outer space to be defined at around 100 kilometres or 62 miles. So just to clarify then, you're saying that there are vestiges of the Earth's atmosphere out there at least 10,000 kilometres above the Earth. I know, incredible distances apart. The bits that you could still consider to have some kind of influence and link to the Earth. Um, beyond that, of course, there is some limit, at which point there'll be no more particles, and you can argue there isn't no influence on the Earth. I mean, we know this happens because satellites slow down in orbit over time, mm. don't they? And that's presumably because there is drag against these vestiges of the Earth's atmosphere out there. Exactly, and that means that they have to be high enough to do that. And uh, my favourite thing is if you want to become an astronaut, you need to pass the Kármán line, and that is the point where you go above uh, 62 kilometres, about 100 miles, and then you can get your astronaut wings. Brilliant. Right, well, I'll put that on my list of things to do. Thank you very much, Stuart Higgins. And also to our other guests this week, Maud Borenstein, Kyle Treber and James Rudd. The producer was Greer Jackson. Now, next week... (laughs) We're laughing off the January blues with a look at the science of comedy. So do make sure you join us for a good giggle session then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next week, it's goodbye from me and from the rest of the team. Goodbye. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Today in Focus is the daily news podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, every weekday as I bring you stories from across the UK and around the world. We'll take you to the front line of the climate emergency. The smoke smells like everything is on fire. Behind the scenes in Westminster. We're in the sort of political Wild West. And we'll cover the latest trends in technology and popular culture. TikTok, TikTok, buzz, buzz, buzz. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.